Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the last podcast of the year for the New Books and Political Science podcast and the first ever best of podcast that we've done uh, rather than feature uh, the author of a new book for this end of the year podcast. What I did is talk to a number of people, some of them who've come on the podcast before, others who haven't, and ask them the book that they read in 2016 that they thought was most significant to them, made a difference in them understanding the politics of 2016 and political science more generally. Uh, Most of these books are American politics books. Uh, I'm underway with another uh, end of the year on some of the other subfields in the the field, but um, I hope you enjoy. Uh, A number of uh, really smart people came on to talk about a number of really good books. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're back with Julia Zari, and she is going to tell us what her uh, favorite books of 2016 are. Uh, why don't you start with the first and then do the second? So what was your, your, your favorite? What's top of your list for 2016? So the top of my list for the book that I keep coming back to and talking about is Michael Tesler's book, Post-Racial or Most Racial, um, published by the University of Chicago Press. And in this book, which has some findings that Tesler has expanded on in The Monkey Cage and other blogging outlets, um, in this book, he finds that Obama's presidency has led to a, um, a racialization of American politics, where there are um, what he calls racial spillover effects. What this means is that after Obama's presidency, um, or if you associate certain issues with Obama, that people's racial attitudes then become more predictive of whether or not they support certain policies. And he finds that this is true. It's not true in every policy area, but it's true across a range of policy areas that go beyond those that we normally associate with racial attitudes. So, for example, crime and welfare have been racialized for a long time. Um, He finds this with attitudes about um, other public figures as well as uh, policy areas. So he makes this argument that Obama's presidency has, in fact, it's been the opposite of, of post-racial, that it's infused American politics with attitudes about race in a way that is different from what came um, in the immediately prior period. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, uh, Tesla's book at the top of my list to, to read during the break. What about your second book? All right, so the next book I think is really nice, is a really nice pairing with um, with Tesla's book, and that is Catherine Kramer's book, The Politics of Resentment, which is about rural Wisconsin politics. And the methodologically, these two books could not uh, be more different. So Tesla's book is quantitative, it has experiments and survey data, um, and 
And Kramer's book is all based on these in-depth conversations she had traveling around the state. She went and had conversations with rural Wisconsin residents where they live and where they socialize. Um, she met with people who had met for coffee in gas stations and in diners um, and had and listened in on and participated in these informal conversations about their attitudes specifically toward um, Wisconsin's kind of two urban centers, Madison and Milwaukee, and some of the resentment that people had toward people living there, particularly public servants, people on the state payroll, including college professors. Um, and what she finds, she finds a whole bunch of different things, a you know, really rich set of findings. One of the things I think is so valuable about this book is the way that she fleshes out the concept of resentment. So the way that resentment works in the the stories that she tells about the people that she spoke to are it, it's it plays this role where it's not that people want resources for themselves. In a lot of ways, the conversations she have has reveals a kind of despondence about getting resources, about life improving. Um, but instead that folks, you know, they're kind of, they've gone past that point and they kind of just want people in the cities to have less um, and for policies to to take things from them and, and punish them. And so it to me, it really illustrates um, something that's happened in our society where people are kind of, some people are kind of racing to the bottom um, and have in some ways expressed giving up on wanting to get to get anything positive out of the political process. So it's very, um, you know, it's a very stark message, but I think an important one for people to read. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Kramer was on the podcast uh, earlier this year, talked about the book. Uh, we, we came into 2016 talking about Wisconsin, and we're certainly leaving talking about Wisconsin again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Have a great day. Up next, we've got Sean McElwee from Demos. Sean, what is the, uh, the book that you read in 2016 that you wanted to talk about? The book I read is uh, Racial Realignment, The Transformation of American Liberalism from uh, 1932 to 1965 by Eric Schickler. The main sort of central thesis of this book is the sort of long realignment theory, the idea that the realignment that we tend to peg to Goldwater, right, in which the Southern Democrats shift the Republican Party and you have these two parties divided on the issue of race, actually began uh, in earnest in the 1930s and that by 1960s, the state-level parties in most national party elites were already uh, polarized and the realignment had basically occurred in all but presidential uh, nominees. And it's great. And yes, and uh, he does a lot of great stuff to sort of show this by keeping digging deeper beyond the the sort of roll call voting, actually looking at things like discharge petitions, uh, the national party platforms of the state parties. For the question of how this relates to 2016, I'd actually want to go to the the sort of first half of the book, because there's a lot on the CIO, that's the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations. And 
what John Lewis, the president of this organization, realized very early on is that many of the workers in the urban areas that they were unionizing were black workers and that if black workers were not part of the unions, then the the corporations would bring in black workers to replace union workers. So a very central uh, key uh, goal for them was to create a multiracial organization. And this is in the 1930s. They also worked very hard uh, to sp- spend a lot of money on national politics in a way the AFL did not do at that time. Uh, they worked very hard to mobilize uh, tens of thousands of volunteers. They made up their contributions made up large shares of the money that was raised by FDR. And what's very interesting and what's important is we are now having this very uh, bitter discussion about, you know, discussing race versus class, and you see how the CIO sort of already had solved, or at least worked very hard to solve this problem in the 1930s. Um, the CIO, their sort of, their vote, the, the what votes do we want, you know, these sort of things that Heritage Action creates or any other organization will create. Their early voting, uh, sort of lists included the issue of uh, anti-lynching bills and anti-poll tax bills. Uh, the CIO uh, leaders would would talk about poll taxes. Um, they would talk about the ways that uh, big sort of elites were using uh, race as a way to divide their members. Um, so it's, it's just interesting how this way of talking about race versus class that was sort of union-driven and continues to be um, in unions, you've seen like with the president of the UAW uh, really speaking out on Flint, uh, working to bring water to the residents of Flint is something that has been around for a very long time. And the tensions that we see now are the same tensions that they saw. They, in their um, the union sort of pamphlets, they did a lot of messaging around the importance of uh, a, a sort of cross-racial alliance in the working class, and but there was some tension among the members. Um, you also saw at the time Hubert Humphrey, who is very anti-communist, using racial liberalism in order to signal himself as a progressive. Um, so you've seen a lot of these tensions that we are seeing now play out then. And I think it's an incredibly valuable book to sort of understand how long these debates have been in the center of American politics and how many of our solutions that we're coming upon uh, were around a long time ago. And people have been thinking about these issues and organizing around these issues, mobilizing around these issues. And a concern for me is that these unions that were able to be a very powerful force for racial justice and economic justice are shrinking as a part of the Democratic coalition where they still exist. Like in Nevada, we have a, a majority Latino union that is doing a lot of door knocking. You've seen a lot of successes. Uh, but in a lot of places, this very core mobilizing institution, this very core institution for creating a cross-racial alliance of working class people uh, have really been eroded. They, they don't have as much of a seat at the table anymore. And Sean, is this book related to anything that you're working on right now? 
Absolutely. Uh, as I noted, there was a time in which unions provided both a mobilizing force within the Democratic Party and also a large share of the contributions to the Democratic Party. Uh, what my recent work with uh, political scientists Brian Schaffner and Jesse Rhodes showed is that this is no longer true. The Democratic donor base is now very white, very male, and very wealthy. So you've had a, a sort of systematic undercutting of unions as the donor base and mobilizing base to unions still being a very important mobilizing base, but no longer being as important as the donor base. And that has definitely shifted the way that the Democratic Party uh, thinks about a lot of these issues. And so it's definitely worth considering it going forward. Yeah, the Schickler came on the, the podcast earlier this year to talk about the work. Sean, thank you so much for uh, bringing that book to our attention again. And uh, thank you for having me on. We now have Lee Drutton with New America to talk about the book in 2016 that he read that thought was uh, meaningful in some way. Lee, so what's your book? So a book I really liked this year was Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government by uh, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels. This is a uh, Princeton University Press uh, book out this year. Uh, tell us just a little bit about it. What's uh, what's the thesis? What's the evidence? Well, it's it's a it's a big book, uh, a big big synthetic book, and it's it's really an argument against what they call the folk theory of democracy, which is this idea that that democracy makes people the rulers, and uh, part of it is uh, a critique of of the idea that that the that people have really meaningful choices in a democracy that people get to choose between A or B, uh, neither of which is their ideal choice. Part of it is a critique of this idea. That, that has long been persistent among good government types and many political scientists of the rational individualist voter that people weigh all the evidence and then come to the best choice. In reality, it's a lot of partisan thinking. It's a lot of motivated reasoning. And it's it's a lot of just identity politics that we look to see what do people like us think about the world? What parties do we affiliate with? And then we go with what people like us are supposed to think. So, as, as we're at the end of 2016, uh, what about this book? What, uh, what about this book has allowed you to sort of make sense of what's happened this year? Well, I, I think uh, one of the challenges that a lot of folks in the sort of liberal academia bubble that we all, most of us live in, uh, is this sense of, well, how could, how could Trump voters not understand that 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 Trump was going to be terrible for them or that the the emails was you know was not really a problem and how could there be all this fake news and i think one of the things that that thinking uh, t- taking what what Aiken and Bartels have to say seriously is that mostly politics is about group identities and about social identities and for a lot of people in this country uh, Trump spoke to those social identities and those group identities. Also, politics is is all filtered through our partisan lenses. And if you're a Democrat, you care about different things than you care about if you are a Republican. So, to you know, I think a, a lot of folks in 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 the good government space think, oh well, if only people just had more information, then they'd make better choices. But more information doesn't solve the problems because, you know, as as they really lay clear, uh, it, it's all about identity. It's all motivated partisan reasoning. 
And it also helps to get us past this idea of, of, well, why don't the parties converge on the center? Because there is no median voter theorem that, that works. You know, we, we all live in our own bubbles and we see the world in different ways. Politics is also multidimensional, which is a, something that they kind of get at nicely in this book, that there's not one left-right axis. So I think it, it, to, to, take, to take what they say seriously, actually, you kind of, understand a lot of what seems like what would have seemed like puzzles about 2016 and say oh well that's actually how politics works and maybe it's just time to come to terms with that reality rather than continuing to wish it were otherwise or to fight against it what a great recommendation in the book uh, democracy for realists out this year lee thanks so much my pleasure we now have lily gorn on the phone from carroll uh university lily how are you doing I'm okay. How are you, Heath? Good. You're coming back to us with uh, your uh, one of your favorite books from 2016. So, which book is that? That's Matt Grossman and Dave Hopkins' Asymmetrical Politics, Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats, that I believe was published by Oxford University Press. Okay, great. So, tell us about the book. Uh, the book is a very extensive um, sort of deep dive into the differences between Republicans and Democrats um, since, since World War II, essentially, since the post-war period, and it really sketches out in a lot of fascinating detail with a lot of supporting work. The difference is not only between the parties themselves and their ideology, but also really the way that they operate. And the operation of the two parties, in their argument, is in fact asymmetrical and has, as a result of that, um, what they're sort of referring to as asymmetrical politics. It's uh, a, a book that, that uh, we would still like to have come on the podcast to talk about. Um, and and so the invitation is open for, for Matt and Dave to come on. Uh, but what did this book um, make you think about in the context of, of the 2016, our, our political year? Well, I, you know, I think it's also interesting in, in sort of an extension or a, a much more elaborate and scholarly um, assessment of some of the work that Thomas Mann and Mark Ornstein had sort of done in, in their text is even worse than it looks. Um, but it but the, the Grossman and Hopkins book is really fascinating, particularly as we look at the the um, sort of coalitions that evolved um, during the course of the presidential campaign in particular starts Donald Trump, who's not necessarily um, a representative example of the Republican Party as we've mostly understood it to operate um, in lots of ways over the past 20 years or 30 years, the Reagan sort of coalition. And part of what um, Grossman and Hopkins do in, in, sort of in their analysis is also to talk about um, the way that the Republican Party is distinct ideologically, um, and that's one of the reasons why Trump was such a sort of um, distinct candidate for the Republicans, because he didn't necessarily fit into a lot of these sort of ideological boxes um, or strays that have been very prominent in the Republican Party for quite some time. Great. Lily, thank you so much. I, uh, you have to promise to come back on in 2017. I would be happy to. We now have Candace Watt-Smith from University of North Carolina. 
to talk about the book in 2016 that she has read uh, that she thinks this is, is meaningful. So, Candace, what's what's the book? I wanted to talk about the race whisperer, Barack Obama, and the political uses of race um, by Melanie Price, who is an associate professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Rutgers. And the book was published by um, NYU Press this year, 2016. So tell us a little bit about the book. The book, The Race Whisperer, uh, is what I like about it is that it moves beyond the claim that Obama was successful because he ran a deracialized um, campaign and deracialized presidency um, or because he stays above the racial fray. But this book helps to decode Obama's racial grammar. Um, and I think ultimately it helps the reader to understand how Obama was able to use race talk to his political benefit and to some extent to the detriment of black people in black politics. I haven't read the book yet, but sounds really, really interesting. Is there anything uh, in the book that that you connected very much to the the political year that we've had to 2016? Is it to frame any thinking that you have had as the year ends? Well, you know, I think that this book is really necessary to understand Obama's success. I think it helps to understand why so many white people love Obama and why so many black people feel they got bamboozled, especially, you know, um, in this era of Black Lives Matter, when a lot of people are talking about race and police brutality um, and marginalization. Um, And, you know, I don't you know, you remember that one of the first things that happened to Obama was um, when uh, Professor Gates got arrested and they had the beer summit. And we haven't really heard Obama talk about policing and and race too much since he had that, you know, uh, gap of the police acted stupidly. And um, this book kind of helps us to think about how Obama has talked about race in the few times that he has. Um, and it it just shows the the kind of maybe perverse genius in how Obama's rhetoric can allow both inclusion and marginalization marginalization um, in one speech and one political philosophy and just the way he sees and talks about the way the world works. Uh, your next book, if it's not called Perverse Genius. <laughs> Uh, then you have chosen the wrong title for your next work. <laughs> thank you very much. That was that was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Heath. And finally, Jason McDaniel is going to give his last book. This is his first time on the podcast from San Francisco State University. Jason, what's the book in 2016 that you read? To me, the most uh, interesting and my favorite book of the year is White Backlash, uh, Immigration, Race, and American Politics by Marissa Abrahano and uh, Zali Hajnal. Yeah, wonderful. Tell us just a little bit about the book. Well, you know, they look at the the way in which immigration, both in terms of the physical environment, the the, the level of immigration, uh, uh, and as well as people's perceptions of it, are impacting uh, white Americans' uh, partisanship, making them uh, more likely to identify with the Republican Party, their voting behavior, making them more likely to vote for Republican candidates at state level, federal level, um, but also their policy preferences. Uh, um, in terms of being more likely to favor more punitive and, and regressive policies when it comes to things like education uh, and criminal justice. Um, and also then, uh, you know, part of my one of my favorite parts of the book is they look at actual state policies um, and relate that to, again, the level of, of Latino immigration in particular. 
Yeah, super interesting book. Um, it almost goes without saying how that helps you make sense of what happened in 2016. But but would you um, uh, relate this to sort of how you looked at uh, our, our wild politics of 2016? Well, you know, I think for me, I, I came back to this after the election. Um, and I had been thinking about racial resentment a lot uh, and, and, and really uh, showing how uh, important racial resentment was to the, the support for Donald Trump in the primary season. But after the election, I came back to this book and it really just blew me away how much they predicted in many respects the importance of immigration and the racialization of Latino immigration in particular, the way in which that at at many levels was really affecting the partisanship of white individuals uh, in America and then also the, the, those small changes of making relatively big changes to the macro partisanship. Um, and it really does seem to be the story of, of what's going on here in 2016 is that uh, in, in many ways immigration really rocked the Republican Party and has really shaped uh, the way in which Republican elites uh, and also Democratic you know, elites and politicians have responded to the issues of, of immigration and the mobilization of Latinos in particular really did shape a lot of what happened this last year. Yeah, uh, really interesting. Thank you so much. You're going to have to promise to come back in 2017. I would be happy to. Great. Thank you. Thank you.